Hello, everyone, and welcome to the final edition of the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast for 2023. I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone for their support in listening to the podcast throughout this year, whether that is on SoundCloud or on Spotify or on your Apple Podcasts app, wherever you've gotten the IMI podcast. Thank you so much for doing that throughout the year. Today, I don't have a guest. I have a slightly different episode of the podcast prepared for you. And today we're going to look back at some of the great conversations that we had throughout 2023. We kicked off speaking to the Deloitte Human Capital team about the upcoming trends for the year, and I'm interested to listen back to some of the conversations that we had with them and see if the trends that we spoke about back in January are still relevant now in December. Take a listen. So it was back to the beginning of the resignation in 2021. It was reported that over 40% of the workforce were actually considering leaving their jobs. And approximately 46% of Gen Z and the millennial generations reported that they did actually plan to leave their jobs within the following two years. So two really, really worrying statistics. So not only was turnover at an all-time high back then, but turnover intentions for the future were also at really, really worrying levels. And I suppose naturally enough, we ask ourselves, what are the reasons behind us? And if we were to bring it back to, to one main reason, is that our lives have been significantly disrupted, as we're all aware, over the last couple of years. And I suppose through that state of disruption, employees have just simply reevaluated what they wanted from their work lives, but also what they didn't want. So some of the specific causes of the great resignation can be really drawn back to things such as lack of support from organizations. You're looking at new career and life goals, employee burnout, as we've seen through COVID, the cost and availability of childcare, people realizing that they wanted to spend more time with their families. And I think the one that, that we can all just identify with is people are no longer content to sit in traffic and do that daily commute, you know, every single day of the week. So I think definitely the Great Resignation has made massive waves over the last year and seen as quite a bit of a challenge. I think organizations realized during COVID that they are nothing without their people and people were really the recipe to to help them kind of thrive uh, through that disruption. And what we've seen towards kind of the end of 2022 is there's been a slight slowdown, but um, not as much as we would have expected with the cost of living crisis and economic uncertainty. People are maybe thinking um, twice before they leave, but the great resignation still continues. Um, and as John has mentioned, there's quite a few reasons for that, uh, such as work-life balance, wanting more flexibility, et cetera. Now, while a lot of organizations see this as a threat to their business, uh, some others see this as an opportunity to reset and to reimagine what the future can look like. Later in the year, I welcomed Dr. Sinead Kane to give us some inspiration that we can probably all do with revisiting around this time of year to get us some motivation for January and beyond. Listen to what Sinead said here. In general, for me, what resilience leaders are and what they do is they show empathy, they're adaptable and able to improvise, they're self-aware and open to feedback. Like when I was doing my PhD, you had to um, be very, very open to feedback because you could do a month's um, summarizing of different articles and different journals and then your PhD supervisor would come along and say okay 
all all those points you've made about all those articles is great, but none of it has gone into your PhD thesis. And so sometimes you have to be open to the feedback and say, okay, well, is that feedback valid? And then sometimes you have to say, okay, use your voice wisely and stand up and say, well, even though you don't think it should go into my thesis, I stand by the points and I want them to go in and be able to argue out your point. So I think it's about um, being adaptable and open to feedback. It's about taking calculated risks. That's what I think um, resilient leaders do. They keep a positive attitude. Um, do they develop others? Commun they communicate effectively. These are some of the traits that I think resilient leaders do. Um, it, for my tips, what people could do if, to try and be a resilient leader would be to lead by example when it comes to creating clear boundaries, making time for self-care and recharging your mental and emotional um, battery. Um, yeah, so for me, really great leaders know how to do that. They know how to practice these things and once you know about yourself, then it helps you to deal with others. So it's all about that thing about self-care, knowing about yourself, and then um, that then will shine through with others, I think. We later moved on to talking about sustainability. And that's definitely a hot topic and one that we'll cover again in 2024 and beyond both on the podcast, in our blogs, and on our upcoming sustainability programme. So here is what Vice Admiral Mark Mellet had to say about sustainability. Do you have any steps that we as individuals and as organisations can take towards becoming more sustainable? Well, for me, I think um, being in tandem with the Climate Action Plan, we need to electrify as much as we can. Uh, generation of power needs to be where possible um, linked to uh, renewable energy uh, that's either on land in terms of uh, wind uh, turbines or offshore in terms of offshore renewable electricity and the government have significant plans for that so the more we can electrify the more we can reduce the amount of carbon going into the atmosphere and that means in our transport system it also means in our home systems um, the second piece is we all need to play a part, I think, in biodiversity uh, regeneration. It's, it's really quite shocking when you look at the statistics with regards to the degradation in, in biodiversity. And, you know, I, I've seen it myself in the maritime, significant vulnerable marine ecosystems that have been destroyed in my lifetime uh, and, and continue to be destroyed, destroyed today. Um, and the third thing would be in the whole area of, of um, I suppose conspicuous consumption, not consuming uh, conspicuously, we, we actually overconsume to the point whereby there's masses of waste uh, domestically and also in society. So I think we need to be um, recognizing that, that famous well-coined line, there is no planet B. We have a, a finite resource on Earth. And when I look at areas in terms of consumption, our, our absolute addiction to protein in terms of meat in particular is uh, something that is not sustainable. You know, there's no problem with eating meat, but I think the, the volumes we, we eat uh, are, are clearly putting a huge challenge in terms of the environment. There's a simple statistic there I often quote, um, you know, about 10,000 years ago, uh, human beings made up about 1% of the vertebrates in the world. And 99% were wild animals. 
Today, human beings make up 32% of the vertebrates. The animals that they keep to feed themselves with are 67% and 1% of the vertebrates are wild. So that's the flip that's happened uh, because of the Anthropocene, because of people. We later cycled back to the future of work a bit with Dr. Marianne Rue. Her event that she held with us here in IMI was so successful that it even spawned a brand new program that will be running again next year after some amazing feedback from the companies that took part. I was also delighted that Marianne agreed to join me on the Talking Leadership podcast to speak a little bit about adaptive HR. It's interesting that you're talking about the future and looking forward to 2025 and beyond. So what does the future of work look like for HR professionals? You mentioned at your event that it's not just about hybrid working or remote working, which tends to take over so much of the conversation, but there's a lot more to the future of work. So can you give us a glimpse into that for HR professionals? Yeah, so I, for me, um, it's something I do. I write future work strategy. For me, HR is going to understand that you are the function that needs to help your board and your executive team make sense of the future of work in your industry and context. Do not assume that people understand it. And as I did say at the at the event, hybrid has taken three days the week when people back at the office, people now call that future of work, but that is not future of work. Future of work kicked off in 2014 with Industry 4.0. And Industry 4.0 is huge and accelerated after COVID. It is the technologies we are using, the digital transformation of our organization. It literally is the automation, the generative AI. If we do not have that as one part of our future of work strategy, which technologies are coming in? What are we automating? How is that changing capability? Have to be across that. Then 2017, people went, oh, that's great. What about the human? If we do all this automation, and this has now been accelerated by ChatGPT in ways nobody can could even imagine two months ago. If we what do we do with the human? So if the machine does all these things in industry 4.0, what do the human beings do? If we don't know what jobs are going to exist, what do we prepare people for? We are finding these massive skills gaps, millions of people that need to be retrained and reskilled by 2025, at least 100 hours a year, and organizations are not doing it. So we've got Industry 4.0, Industry 5.0, first two bits of future of work. Yes, then you do also have hybrid work and people not feeling the same way about work after COVID. So how do you work? How do you lead? How do you put teams together? How do you communicate? How do you train in a hybrid work? Then in the middle of all of that, we've gone and said, ESG is very important. We have to have an ESG strategy. And that S is a massive people implication S. It's diversity and inclusion. It's community. It's developing our people. It's the number of women we have on the boards. It's all these things and on our executive teams. So you need to get your head around ESG. Towards the middle of the year, we pivoted a little to talk about innovation in business. I did a whole series and there were some key themes that emerged. So I'll play a few clips from a few of those podcast episodes. Thank you so much, Ian. I think a lot of our listeners probably work within organizations or lead organizations that fall within that middle. So I think this is particularly interesting to them. And I want to pick up on a stat that you mentioned there about 
20% of innovation tools. So within your book, you mentioned that applying 20% of the innovation tools and techniques available should give you about 80% of the results. So I guess the big question is, how can an organization identify which 20% they should be using in their business? What we've given is, is a framework, and it's probably worth talking about that, that framework to give you a sense of it. But the framework, like Scaffold, says, you know, um, um, these are the big pieces that you need. And this is something that Keith, actually, and his colleagues about 30 years ago identified, that this is constantly all this research about innovation, latest tools, latest techniques, um, methodologies, and what have you. But really, you know, those that were really successful have about five parts to it. And the first part is, do you have an innovation strategy? And, and, and that's really around a strategy for growth tied to the business strategy. The second part is, are you organized? Do you have the, the people, the structure? Can teams come together? Can they, can, they, can they assimilate knowledge? Can they move through the phases? Can they disband, work on new projects, go back to their business as usual jobs over time? Do we have a, a, a commitment to innovation in terms of how we work, our mindsets, our values, and most importantly, do we measure it? So what is strategy in the top piece and the bottom piece is around organization? And then you have the three middle pieces that people think of, which is around insights and ideas, portfolio management, how do I pick the winners over the losers? And then how do I get my innovations, whatever they may be, product, service, process, new business models, what's the right tools to get them there? So that scaffold says, well, that's where I need to put my tools. Your question is, which are the right tools to go in there? And I think it's, it's, we're not proposing that our 36 tools are the absolute you know, ones that you all have to have. There's gonna be other tools because different companies have different specialties. Digital data insights is gonna mean you know, more important things for some companies over others. Um, certain, you know, stage gate is going to be much more appropriate for pharmaceutical companies that are very kind of rigid and regulation and a much more kind of formal process versus agile development and software. But what we do do is we, we, we pull out the main ones, including the ones that I've just mentioned, and show how they work together. And if there's a variety of that tool that's more suited for your domain or your industry, so be it, go get it. What we're really giving is kind of like these meta tools, and I can get into some of those tools and techniques in those different phases, but we'd be confident that these are kind of like the Pareto principles. These are the ones you want to have, absolutely add to them, absolutely subtract or use different versions of them, but we've, we've looked back at the research over the last 25 years and the kind of key tools that have been developed, uh, and, and the trick is here is they've got to work together in an integrated fashion. Another kind of just pet peeve is, is that something becomes popular for the last few years, it's been design thinking, and then suddenly that's the answer. But design thinking does a number of amazing things, but it doesn't do everything. It doesn't do portfolio management. It doesn't do innovation strategy in the true sense of the world. You know, it, it does do insights and it does do getting things to market, but then it's, it's, it's got its limitations, so you need a whole set. I think we could chat a little bit about the wildest idea concept because I found that one really interesting on the webinar. 
Yeah, ab- absolutely. You actually read my mind, Farah. Would you believe that? I was thinking something similar myself, right? So, for example, you could say you could say to people, you know, you could be in the session, and again, you say, look, you explain it. We've indicated we're gone expansive. Let's use the wildest idea tool, okay? So now, the wi- the wildest idea. So let's just say we're we're trying to come up with a wild idea to. Uh, just pretend we're on the leadership team for Ryanair, okay? So we're on the leadership team for Ryanair, and somebody says we're, we're having a brainstorming session, and we need to come up with new ways of generating revenue. And in the middle of the brainstorming session, somebody says, "I have an idea. Let's put seats on the wings of a plane." Now, if we're really honest, we're going to our reaction to that would probably not be that positive. People will probably be saying. Oh my God, it's not safe. It's not realistic. Blah, 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 blah. But, but if I'm running the, one of these sessions or somebody who's, who's skilled at, at, at sort of creativity and innovation and building ideas, they'll actually say, this is brilliant because this is outside our normal way of thinking. No, we're not thinking harder. We're thinking differently. So you take that crazy idea, seats on the wings of the plane, and you say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fuel this idea by asking two questions. One, what are the positives in this idea? And two, how else can these ideas, how else can those positives be achieved? So let's do that. So what? So I might ask people, what are the positives of having seats in the wings of a plane? And they might say, uh, fresh air, great view, no noisy kids, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what you do is you take each of those one by one and you say, how else can we achieve this positive of seats in the wings of a plane in a more tangible way. So let's take one. So you might say to people, okay, how can we achieve having no noisy kids on a plane without putting seats on the wings of the airplane? And what people might say to that is, actually, why don't we have adult-only flights? Another key topic we discussed was artificial intelligence. And in one particular podcast with Larry Stapleton, we really delved into the uses of generative AI and things like ChatGPT, how that can help you in your daily work. Let's take a listen to what Larry had to say. I think it's fascinating, Larry, that AI has all of these different kinds of applications, because I think that everyone has the tendency to just think about it from their own roles perspective. So for example, I would have only been thinking about it from a content creation point of view, but to see things like this pineapple company, and I've just looked them up, they look really modern and really fresh. And I Ooh. guess that when you're you're making use of AI technology to do certain things, you can shift your, your own human focus onto other aspects, you know, and create a, a better experience overall. So yeah. I do I do want to talk a bit about something that I think a lot of people are concerned about but might not want to ask. And it's about the potential replacement of human workers by AI technology. So do you foresee any kind of scenarios in the future where some of the creative fields, for example, things like video production and photography and the customer experience side of things, do you foresee any kind of scenario where those roles in the future are just replaced by AI technologies? Or do you think that they'll still need to be largely a human backbone behind the technology? I, I, I think that we can learn from previous game-changing um, technologies where technologies have 
really transformed sectors or multiple sectors. We can learn from that, those experiences, and we've had them before over the last, since the Industrial Revolution started really back at the end of the 18th century. We, we've seen like, t- uh, quite a number of real game-changing um, and, and uh, technological advances, and we're seeing another one now. And what the, what the big lesson from all of those has been something along these lines. There is a lot of disruption in the workforce there, um, and there's always an accompanying kind of conversation at society level around, you know, layoffs, around mass, um, masses of people being unemployed. What are we going to do with them and all of this? What has tended to happen has been something quite different. What has tended to happen is people uh, um, will find that new roles open up. This technology is going to um, generate a whole new suite of new kinds of of work that is going to be needed, Um, both in the regulatory side and the oversight side, as well as in in other aspects of business where where business is, is um, generating value for itself and where, where public sector organizations are uh, being a, able to improve services, for example, to, to their citizens. So I think what, I'm, what I think we're starting into is another transition and it will be painful for some sectors, for sure, you've touched on a few of them, but new opportunities are going to open up. And this is going to put, a, put pressure on our education systems. And I'm really excited that the IMI uh, are, are one of the the first out the gate on this. And finally, I think this might have been my favourite podcast episode of the year because it's just a topic that everyone can relate to and that is workplace culture. I was joined by Bruce Daisley, who is a former VP of Twitter, now known as X, to discuss how organisations and leaders can really build a workplace culture that retains employees. So can you think of any examples of companies that have created a really strong culture that has led to improved retention rates yeah i, th- I think you know the, the component what you often find is that the first thing it's for, for all of us to understand there's a really important lesson that often culture most vividly exists at a team level rather than a company level and i think that's quite helpful so that means that we might not be the chief exec ourselves but we might have a team and actually we can shift the dial we can have an impact on our own teams even if organizationally the organization's challenged or if different departments have got different (laughs) different problems actually um knowing that we can impact our own team is is really critical look how do you build great culture but the the first thing that anyone does is you've got to build trust and trust is really vital i I was really fortunate to chat to uh, one of the, the world's leading experts on on uh, workplace culture, a, a woman um, called Frances Fry. And she's the person that organizations like Uber, when their culture is toxic and goes wrong, they call Frances Fry. And I was really taken with one thing she said to me. She said, um, one way to build cynicism quickly in an organization is to ask people for their input and then do very little with the information they give you. I loved it. I loved it. And she said, so anytime you do a staff survey, anytime you do a pulse report and people tell you what's wrong, if you don't do anything, trust will go. And firstly, it's incredibly relatable. She said, you know, if you think about staff surveys, quite often you do them and then it'll be like three months before the results are presented back to you or it will be 
ages and ages. And you're like, well, I know how surveys work. The results are ready now. You know, why not demonstrate the urgency that the company's trying to help by by turning these things around by Monday morning and showing people what's what's going to change that week. Um, and I just was really taken with that because just at the heart of all workplace culture is trust. And to the point I said before, sometimes the trust can just exist in your team. In fact, I've worked in teams where it's felt like we weren't necessarily confident about the way that the whole company was going, but we knew that our business unit together was going to make things work and was going to work for each other and support each other. So thank you again to everyone for listening to the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast this year. We'll be back early in January with new episodes and we really look forward to talking about interesting and thought-provoking topics throughout 2024. Have a great festive season and new year.